uh, when he is so f***ed up on drugs, <laughs> he, on camera, punches a mirror and starts bleeding profusely in one of the takes. It's times like that where you can really see the resemblance between him and Charlie. Yeah. Fools rushing. It's the Limbaugh Podcast Show. With Brian Christine Clay, you know. And guests who drop on by. Welcome to The Limbaugh, a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom, who's received it, who should receive it, and maybe a few who shouldn't. I'm Christine Sear. I'm Clay Russell. And I'm Brian Tuft. And we usually use the beginning of the show to apologize tongue-in-cheek for previous misdeeds, but this time this is an earnest apology because we've been off the air, the proverbial air, for quite some time, including a big chunk of time where the president finally gave us some medals of freedom. So... We have a few excuses. Let's let's run through them. One was um, none of them are fault. Too. Let's no, of let's point that out. None of them were our fault. We have never done anything wrong ever in our lives. So Clay and I both got COVID. So that was yeah. that was brutal. Sixty-seven percent of the show had COVID. That's that's gonna slow you down. You know. It is. It is. Yeah. Clay also went to Turks and Caicos with his parents, which is envy-inducing and adorable. So I just wanted to mention that also. I also uh, shout out to Turks and Caicos when the very first thing you see when you walk into the customs area is a framed 1980s photo of Queen Elizabeth. Mm. Like, you know you're in good hands whenever it's 80s era Queen Elizabeth that you see. Yes, they're still part of the Commonwealth, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. That's why she was there. (laughs) And then don't forget, Clay wouldn't let us record the podcast during June because he didn't want it to be a gay podcast. (laughs) Right. The Limbaugh, famously (laughs) anti-gay. He also made sure when our previous attempt to record this episode that Brian's voice was utterly silenced, (laughs) which is why we have to re-record a little bit. I sounded like one of those mafia informants on Dateline. Yeah. Well, this is, I, I spent all this time editing the session and then we get to Brian's part and it's so Brian, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Brian. If we ever get popular enough to get like a Patreon or something that should be for our subscribers is like hilarious. (laughs) Us reacting to the ghost of Brian's like witty comments. (laughs) Right. To Brian's telepathic statements. It's like a like a clip where you can insert your own Brian yes. Tuftism. Oh yeah, what do they call it on TikTok? Like duet duet this. God, we should do that. We should just like have like isolated tracks and just send it. <laughs> or just one track that's a super cut of every time a dog has barked or like yeah. I don't know. I did. I uh I think I mentioned this to Brian and Christine, I want to run it by you as well. I uh finally watched the 2018 version of Little Woman and I think is like part of our Patreon account that people can, you know, if they donate, we will with only the three of us playing all parts, we'll just reenact scenes from the film. I love that idea. Call me Marmy. Everyone else does. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, Joe, you're one beauty. Wait, and we have to do it after <laughs> one of you gets one of us gets a haircut so that it's like, no, you're one beauty. Right. Yeah. And just any time that we have an argument, it's just all of us just going. <laughs> and that's it. I love it. All right, guys. So, yeah. yeah so the bad news is we've been we've been missing for a while. The good news is we're, we're clearly full of ideas for future content. Yes. So I think we're I think we're in good shape. So as I like to say, there's a lot of news. It's a very newsy couple of days here in these United States. So just to pinpoint us at the exact moment in time, because I assume this will be released in a few days, it's mm-hmm. 3.20 p.m. at 3 o'clock p.m. today. The uh, the warrants for Trump, you know, searching Mar-a-Lago for the secret documents that, uh, that Trump had taken and not given back to the government was like just released. So we are sort of trying to follow that. I don't think it's entirely full of surprises. I think it's like, yeah, as this picture started to come in focus, it was pretty clear that he had taken and held on to. I'm not going to use the correct lingo. Brian had it in front of him. It's like <laughs> super top secret, ultra, don't throw this in a storage room at the pool house of Mar-a-Lago status type of documents. Which is crazy because over the course of his presidential term, I think he has shown time and time and time again that everyone who goes to Mar-a-Lago is an upstanding person and it's a very secure space. Agreed. I do want to remind everyone as well that a Chinese agent was arrested at Mar-a-Lago with like bugging equipment and and a hard drive loaded up with viruses during the Trump administration. So you guys, if we flew to Palm Beach right now. We could walk into Mar-a-Lago and start rifling around. I guarantee rifling it. Rifling like, through boxes yeah. marked top secret. I could be wearing like my Biden-Harris sweatshirt from election season and just walk right in. Nobody cares. So this was, was this intentional? That's what I have to ask. Do you think yes. they intentionally did this to cause a ruckus or do you think that they're idiots? Oh, I think that they're idiots. I think like porque no las dos. Why not both? The administrative. When I say administrative, I mean like lowercase a because I know administration refers to like the presidential organization. But like administratively, just like administrative tasks, they had shown themselves throughout the presidency to be completely incompetent. And I think this is just more of that but like it's i don't think it's a coinky dink like it's not just like whoops our incompetence happened to fall within this incredibly secret let's remind everyone that he has been out of office for a year and a half he has and it's also the public which by the way is public because trump decided to fake tweet about it whatever his dumb social media that he's on are you referring to truth social truth social I was just raided by the FBI. Like it, it became news instantly because he blew it up. But what we saw at the beginning of the week was the culmination of like many months of the DO, the archives and the DOJ, like trying to just do it the normal way, being like, hey, we can't help but notice we're missing a bunch of stuff. Can we have the stuff? And they're like, sure, we'll get you the stuff. And then they didn't. And then there was, I think, a subpoena. And there was at one point earlier the in the FBI spring. visited, they actually visited, yeah. I can't remember how long ago it was. It was a couple of months right. ago and was like, hey, like, let's do this And they now. gave them like some boxes and they were like, cool, we're going to go through these. And they went through them and they were like, mm-hmm. this isn't what we need. So mm-hmm. I think like at some point in this multi-phase. It doesn't say nuclear launch codes <laughs> on the box. 
What's comforting about that, though, is there's like a 50-50 chance that Kid Rock has seen the nuclear codes. (laughs) (laughs) And may try to use it as pyro at one of his shows. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So it, you know, it could have initially been administrative incompetence, but I think by the third or fourth escalating step of seriousness that the, um, the government was like, we're not kidding. Like, give us the stuff. It doesn't belong to you. I never thought that I'd say this, but I do want to return to kid, the kid rock comment, which is (laughs) first and only time. The FBI also seized a bunch of CCTV footage of the area where the classified material is kept. So we're going to know that we may at a later time just see a montage of all of these fucking D-list celebrities going into a place holding top secret classified like nuclear bankers boxes technology. with like sharpies <laughs> do not open yeah and also the other thing again there is so much news and it is literally breaking as we speak but i think i was reading something in the last few days that like a lot of the government's knowledge of like how serious the documents were that were being held at Mar-a-Lago was like leaked from someone on Trump's side. There's someone that for some f-ing reason still works for him or with him that has enough of a conscience to be like, hey, yeah, no, some of the stuff he's holding on to is like pretty legit. You should probably <laughs> you should probably come get it. It is just to take a step back. The FBI raided an ex-president of the United States. Like mm-hmm. how just the series of events that it took to get to that point. I yes. honestly don't think that Merrick Garland wanted to get to the point where he had to raid the home of an ex-president of the United States. I mean, the energy he brought to that press conference was very disappointed dad. You know, he was just like, all right, well, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. The <laughs> New York Times phrased it as having a press conference in a clipped tone. Which is the most emotion he's ever shown in his public mm-hmm. life. Yeah. Um, Listen, they wanted to fuck around. They wanted to deny him his uh, SCOTUS seat. He bowed his time, but he got what he wanted. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And frequently. <laughs> like the like the shrimp at the Mar-Laga buffet. <laughs> I assume. We'll yeah. find out when we go there and just start looking around. Yeah. Okay. I do want to pivot to a larger issue, though, which is that I feel like the Democrats, we are on what, about year seven of Donald Trump as a major political figure. The Democrats still have not figured out the power of controlling the narrative. And Mm -hmm. his home was raided when? It was about a week ago. And immediately Trump did what he does, which is, you know, cries to the heavens that the government is out to get him and the elites are doing this and he's done nothing wrong. And there were crickets on the Democratic side. I do want Mm -hmm. to qualify this that I think that Merrick Garland and the Justice Department behave the way that they should have, which is they have no comment on that stuff, especially when there may be a potential trial coming up. And so it's not their job to get out there and, and give opinion. But I also think that there's this bullshit sense of decorum and tradition and all this that the Biden White House is still grasping to with their fingernails. And they should have at the top said, "Okay, you were raided. You just publicly admitted it. What's in the warrant? And they never did that. They just stayed silent and Trump took the narrative. And I would say that probably the majority of voters out there don't even understand the, the concept of warrants and publicly releasing them and things like that. 
that should have been handled by the White House up front saying we have no opinion on it, but Donald Trump has every right to release the warrant because he's publicly said that he's been raided. And they never did that. And Donald Trump, up until today, when the warrant was unsealed, ruled the narrative. And if they keep doing this, he's going to get reelected in 2024 if they let him dominate the conversation Mm -hmm. and, again, frame the narrative. Yeah, it was earlier in the week when there had been the initial news about the search, but like hadn't been any follow up of substance from anyone. You know, there wasn't any new news. And so, of course, the following day, the news was just very like reactionary. And at one point in the afternoon, the top story in the Washington Post was like the Trump, Trump himself and his people, but also just any registered Republican, including like Mike Pence and um, I think Kevin McCarthy, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham. I don't think I think Mitch McConnell has been dead silent even up until this moment, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. But a lot of other prominent Republicans in politics are like decrying it, going on the either on Twitter or on. Fox News or the one that's even worse that I can't remember. Newsmax. OAN. Yeah. And it's like, so so that's fine. But of course, they're going to do that. They're going to go to their friendly outlets. The idea that then the Washington Post let that be the top story for any moment of time. I'm not saying don't report on that because it is part of the story, but it's not the story. And so for I think it was like a solid two days until the Merrick Garland press conference, the story was Trump and his people reacting to it instead of the facts. And to be fair, I guess in an absence of facts, all you have is is the reaction. And you're Someone right, is but... going to fill the narrative, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what Donald Trump is, one of the greatest public figures ever at doing that and forcing his hand at, at controlling the narrative. He did it when the Mueller report was released. And again, through decorum, yeah. nobody said anything. They waited for the full report to be released and all that. And Bill Barr got in front of it and said a bunch of untrue shit. And guess what? That was the narrative. And they're doing the exact same thing with the FBI. And you know what? They're going to always do it. And the fact that the Democrats are too dumb to figure that out by now is just extremely disheartening. Now, if I could, I think we're being a little too harsh on the Democrats because they found out that Roe was going to fall four months before that ruling came out. And look at how successful they were in codifying Roe through the Senate. Yes, you're right. Okay. Thank you very much, Joe Manchin. (laughs) How long did it take for Biden to actually comment on the ruling when he had four months to prepare for it? I think it was like two weeks until he actually had a press conference. Something like that. It felt like two weeks, however long it actually was. And the other thing about narratives, which is something I've been thinking about today, is like a lot of people on the conservative side are like, oh, this was a big miscalculation. The backlash to this search. Again, this is all the discourse prior to the warrant being released. So the discourse probably going to change a little bit. They're going to find new like little ways to weasel through it. But I think the spirit's going to be the same. It's sort of like, oh, you know, now Trump is going to have so much more political support because the back the public backlash to like the way he's being treated um, is going to garner him more political support. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. Like that didn't work for Hillary. We were all super pissed when the investigation opened and closed on her like a week before the election. And people, the popular narrative is that that cost her the election. So, like, why are we now acting like this is good for him? Because these things, like, work- it sucks, but I think that they're right. 
But why? I think it's good at like rallying his people. But I think the independents that either sat out supporting him in 2020 or voted against him in 2020, this is just like... If any, the only thing is, like, we have such short memories. I wish this had happened later. Like, I just, mm-hmm. I feel like this is such a great reminder of the chaos you get when Trump is in charge. And I think this is great at fundraising for Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm sure that's through the roof this week now that she has joined us and thinks that the uh, ACAB and that the police should be defunded because she's mad at the FBI. I mean, you had a guy in Cincinnati yesterday attack the FBI bureau out there. Like, they've definitely dominated the narrative. And again, when the whole Hillary email investigation reached out, Trump was the one who got his bullhorn in there first and dominated the narrative because the FBI, by their nature, wasn't saying anything. And the Democrats were too uh, busy curtsying to everyone and and getting in a handshake line to, to actually say anything first. And it sucks. But like there were reports only a couple of weeks ago saying that Fox News and all these media outlets were starting to back away from Trump because he's too crazy. And then something like this happens. The Democrats don't actually even make an attempt to to frame what's going on. And all of the, his voters and his base who were starting to lose interest in him are right back to it because they think that he's a sympathetic figure getting attacked by an overzealous deep state. <laughs> sure. Haven't we all? I mean, <laughs> they could if they could take nuclear, you know, sensitive national security bankers boxes out of Mar-a-Lago, they could take them out of your house. Okay. But how long, like the raid was a week ago. How long was it till we actually discovered that it involved that type of material? It was only two days ago. So they had five days of void to actually write their own story. Whereas the Democrats could have been like, show us the warrant. The warrant will say what was taken, but you're refusing to show us the warrant. You're just saying that you were attacked, but you're not actually saying what you were attacked for. Right. And I think uh, I hate giving him credit for anything, but I think he knew that like he'd seen he knew that they weren't going to say anything. So he's like, I just need to blow as much in the however many days I get between now and the public finding out what this was all about. I, I have to blow as much hot air as I can to try to, like, get under the story, which is a identical process to what they did with the Mueller report. Yeah, It's just the only difference is now he's like some guy. I mean, he's some guy that he's the former guy, but he doesn't have like the power of the White House behind him. So I I think, you know, it has a little less power in that sense. But also don't forget the type of people who support him or the type of person who's for some reason going to think he should be president now because of this. Like these aren't people who are taking in uncritical, not uncritical like neutral news reporting. Like they're just not even good. They're only going to see the things that are filtered through the Fox news of it all. Or even have an awareness of search and seizure law. (laughs) I mean, I'll be honest. I learned a lot in the last 48 plus hours about, well, about classified documents and like what the president has the authority to do and not do versus like, you know, this judge in Florida had to authorize it because it's his house is in Florida. And like, there's a lot of legal nitty gritty that the average person doesn't know. And that's fine. What's not fine is if you just in the absence of that knowledge, just take whatever someone like Donald Trump or, or Margie Taylor green tells you, um, and run from there. I mean, I'll give 
Merrick Garland and the Justice Department credit more so than I give the White House because Garland didn't have to do this, but he called the press conference and said, we don't comment on these matters, but because the person who was raided has publicly talked about being raided, we'll talk about it now. And he didn't have to do that, but he did, and he's getting in front of the warrant and doing a better job at containing this than the White House is. And I'm looking at the New York Times front page right now, and the sub-headline underneath all of the news about the raid is, quote, the White House is staying quiet about the FBI search in an effort to make sure the operation is not seen as partisan. I think not editorializing about it is important for the White House. But like you said, they can still address the facts and address the procedure of it. Show us the warrant. Yeah. You're probably, you're obviously saying that you got raided. What does the warrant say? You could release it. He had it the whole time. That's all they had to do. That's all they well, had to I do. Well, I mean, I think that as much as he's always like kind of lauded for his ability to control the narrative, I think what's been interesting about this is without the power of the White House and without the government being obligated or feeling obligated to tip him off about certain things. I think this went from they went in there and they stole things, they planted evidence to I'm sure it had to have been Maggie Haberman to like reached out to him yesterday and was like, listen, I have a source. They're telling me that they went in because you had confidential and top secret information, including stuff about like defense that could be considered uh, acts of espionage in the documents. Are you going to try to stop the document, the warrant from coming out? And I'm sure his gut reaction was, yes, I'm going to try to stop it. And then I think as the information started to kind of leak out, I think he realized that he couldn't. And I wasn't joking before we jumped on Mike, where on Truth Social earlier today, he said that Obama had thousands of pages of classified documents at his home in Chicago. Why didn't they raid Obama's house? And like, it was just like a thing where I was like, oh, like this is, this isn't the the best stuff, you know, like it's, it's for the best. You're not on Twitter right now because this isn't what the whole audience, you know, is going to, it has come to expect from Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States and the original king of comedy. Um, So I was just, (laughs) I, I expect more from him at this point. He is going back to the, I think he used the word hoax. I think he was there like was a, a, a minute ago. It was don't worry, those, all those documents were declassified. Like it's just it's a lot of shooting from the hip. And honestly, I think it's because he doesn't. He's not in a safe space. He's in Midtown Manhattan. This is not. This is not. Those are not his people. You know, like we always said, would he ever come back to New York? And unfortunately, he came back to New York, and it's the worst time to be here because, like, there's you know, like truly, just the first domino has fallen. And then, like, that thing with uh, he had to be here to speak to Letitia James, and it took place in the same place where they shot all those investigation scenes from Succession, <laughs> and he had to plead the fifth 400 times. Like, it's just, I'm sorry. Like, I'm. it's a bad time to be Donald Trump. And you know what? It sucks because, yeah, we've just spent 24 minutes talking about all of this crap when we had this hugely successful week with Joe Biden where he passed climate change legislation and all of this yes. other stuff, but we're not like the media is not talking about it. No one is talking about that anymore because the Democrats are somehow unable to control the narrative. I know. I mean, the thing with passing legislation is it's like it's a long term win. And so I'm still like very happy that it happened. But in terms of like yeah. the game of the news cycle, yeah, it's totally dead in the water. I don't know how you change that. Like, 
Do you get younger people in the Democratic National Committee to kind of take control of that? Because I feel like the White House Communication Center is just kind of uh, very much in a wait and see reactive sense instead of actually being proactive with with these accomplishments here. Well, I feel like the two extremes that you see, this is just speaking very generally, but like my impression is the two extremes that I see with the Democrats are like the old guard, which we're definitely seeing with the Biden White House, sort of on the the more cautious, quieter side of things and and not take and then, you know, the news cycle just runs away with them because they're not participating. But then I think there's sometimes there's this like overemphasis on like the Twitter discourse, you know, like there's a very young liberal wing of the party that's like awesome at Twitter. And it's like, okay, you got a hundred thousand likes on your like tweet about, you know, some sort of jokey tweet about Trump being in trouble, but like that didn't actually accomplish anything. And so, yeah, I would love to see those two, like that gap get bridged where someone who has the kind of skill to know, like someone who knows the kind of tweet that's going to get hundreds of thousands of likes is very savvy about discourse and about what gets people's attention and, and how to summarize things in a pithy way so it's like those skills can also be used in legitimate like i don't know what the right phrasing is like ways to shape the narrative like you're saying it's just like Mm -hmm. it feels like they're they're operating completely separately like the old guard is doing it the old way and the young and is like has no interest in bringing in the new guard yeah you hear one of the big criticisms of pelosi is that she will only deal with people her own age and they (laughs) should absolutely be making the yeah. yeah They should be making outreach to the squad and all of those people because they are certainly more talented at a 21st century media landscape and they should be working together. I think that you're right, Christine, that that yeah. there's a, a middle ground between being savvy at media communication and being so geriatric and reactive that like you're just going to get passed over and you're going to have a monster reach the White House again. Well, yeah. And like you or one of or both of you said, like the White House has inherent power. I mean, it's literally true, but it's also just the weight of things that either come directly from the White House or, you know, indirectly, but where the public knows that it's coming from the White House. And so the squad and people like that who are who are really reaching people on on TikTok and I just blanked Twitter and all that stuff. It's like, that's great, but that's not actually reaching anyone who's not on TikTok or Twitter or even people like me. I'm not on TikTok. I am on Twitter. It's like, I'm not really impressed by like a great tweet from a politician because I'm like, okay. And you know what? So what else? Like now that you got a hit, (laughs) like congrats on the hit tweet, but like, what are you going to do with this? And what it is, is they need that, they need that like we use platform, like a social media platform, and that's not to be discounted. But like if you're in politics, the ultimate platform is the White House. Agreed. Okay, so did we just solve it? We just solved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And again, no, I'm going to jump to defend Democrats really quick before we wrap this up, which is I understand why Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to have dinner with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez at La Diplomat. And it's because Nancy Pelosi is probably like, well, what are we going to talk about? And, you know, an aide is like, you and AOC actually have a lot in common. And Nancy Pelosi is like, how many DUIs does her husband have? And I understand <laughs> that that's a hard hill for Nancy to have to climb. What does her freezer cost? Because mine costs <laughs> right. $4,000. No, no, you you take the subway. The sub what? <laughs> oh, I don't like sandwiches. 
Why doesn't she hang out with my granddaughter? <laughs> yeah, no, it's 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 not great, guys. It's not great. And I, it just seems like they're not learning these lessons. And I don't know how many times they can, like, run into a brick wall before they're like, hey, maybe I shouldn't run in this direction anymore. It's yeah. one of those things, though, where, like, when Trump does stuff like this and just makes such a mess and, you know, it becomes so much about him, I think as much as we're bemoaning that the Democrats are not doing a good enough job shifting the, t- the conversation back to their accomplishments or what actually matters in this day and age, or even just really pointing out how bad this is for Trump, I think that they're, like, most elections are decided by, like, 27,000 people in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And I think that this is the exact kind of BS that really turns them off on Trump. And I think that Democrats have just continued to luck out as much as they, everyone is always like, oh, this was terrible. You know, like 2016 was a disaster for them. They're Dems in disarray. Look at the vote turnout in, in Kansas last week where, you know, abortion yeah. was saved because people were like, no, this is really, really terrible. And something like 100,000 people who had never voted in a um, I'd never voted in a primary, but I had also never voted in a non-presidential year midterm. and a midterm election, a midterm primary. Um, and two out of like 20,000 of those people were Republicans who came out and were like, no, actually, if they come for this, what's next? And I think that that's what keeps happening is like, it's the opposite of Charlie Brown and the football. Every so often the Democrats like run towards that football and they're, they're going to kick it. And somehow like Lucy isn't paying attention and they actually like held it across the field. And you know, it's, that's why Nancy Pelosi doesn't seem to learn is because at least two out of every 10 times she runs at that football, her or Chuck Schumer actually get it. I know. Right. (laughs) I mean, look, that's the thing about, I mean, all of the drawbacks to having elderly, Congress people and people in power, I feel like we literally have talked about, but it's also talked about elsewhere. But like the one, the perk is that institutional knowledge and like knowing how to play the game. And so like, yeah, it's not blind luck that sometimes they win. They win because they like, they know what they're doing, but it, there, there's a middle ground of institutional knowledge and like literally having any idea what's going on in the outside world. That actually reminds me of a TikTok that I saw that Diane Feinstein posted. I'm kidding. <laughs> I can't. We're not even. <laughs> Brian, Brian, you have to pause a little bit to try to sell the joke, okay? Christine looked so horrified. Like, she was like, I have to follow Diane Feinstein on TikTok. Christine was literally like this. <laughs> <laughs> I just, the thought of what a TikTok starring die-fi would even look like that's if she even knew anything was happening at all yikes okay so on a lighter note we are here to talk about um yeah speaking of democrats pretending things are uh, running fine. as smooth and normal as ever Biden finally decided Biden to give us some medals, some medals. <laughs> so we're gonna run yeah. through we're gonna run through this first class when we get back and don't forget to follow us on twitter at limbaugh podcast we'll be back in a gif Second only to Donald Trump's wait of 22 months into his term. On July 1st, 2022, President Joe Biden made his picks. 17 choices for the Medal of Freedom. Very exciting. And 
As always, with all the presidents that we profile, I think that you can start to get a picture of the president's personality and what he's trying to communicate through these choices. The first thing that jumped out to me, at least, is that there are no writers or artists in this list, aside from a very famous actor that is here. I do see a lot of civil rights and social activists on the list. I also see that there is, I was surprised by the amount of partisanship with this. And I don't know, maybe I should put a qualification on that, guys, that uh, maybe less partisanship, but kind of communicating that he is the opposite of Donald Trump, even to the point of naming a couple of of Donald Trump's adversaries in the list. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. Let's get into it. Uh, we will go alphabetically and we can talk about each one. Okay. So the first one is gymnast Simone Biles. Uh, she is a decorated American gymnast, one of the most decorated American gymnasts in history. Yes. The combined incredible 32 gymnast. Olympic and world champion medals. Yeah. Uh, she's also an advocate for mental health and safety. I think that we all remember that from the last Olympics. A advocate for children in the foster care system and victims of sexual assault. She was part of the uh, uh, the Reckoning scandal with for Larry the, Nasser. Uh, yeah, exactly. The Larry Nasser and, and all of the victims of assault with that. So has to be one of the youngest medalist recipients ever. At 25, she is the youngest ever. I uh, like Simone Biles. I think that absolutely she stands for a lot of good things. I do feel like this pick seems a little too soon so it's like i agree so i think that's something maybe we can keep sort of touching on as we breeze through the the new class or maybe even think about with like our ongoing cycle through history with the the nominees or recipients because it's like i have sort of thought of it as like essentially a lifetime achievement award Mm -hmm. and so other young Recipients include the, as we all know, we stand super hard, the Apollo astronauts on this podcast. They were fairly young recipients because they literally went to the moon. Um, Yeah. It just. No one, no living thing had ever done that before. You get yourself a medal if you do that. And if you watch the documentary like I did, you will cry like I did as like some of the things that they accomplished. Like it really hits you how unlikely (laughs) in a weird way it was. Mm. Anyway. I, I, it's, it's strange because gymnasts tend to have really young careers, right? And maybe there's a reason Larry Nasser gravitated towards coaching gymnastics because now we know a few things Ugh. about his, uh, him. So I guess it's sort of like, you know, her gymnastics career was probably going to be finishing up soon anyway. And her gymnastics career has been incredible. I mean, she's arguably like the, the best, if not like, I'm not a gymnastics expert, but like up there for best gymnasts ever in the all of all time. But it's sort of the idea that she's getting a presidential medal of freedom. It it feels it does feel a little early and it and it feels a little bit like she has only just now retired from being a full time athlete. And so I would love to see what she's going to do with her advocacy efforts. For example, I didn't know that she works with foster care and that's like a part of her advocacy. Like, I think I would have preferred to give her a little more time to actually like do the proverbial work or the literal work on those things. If, if, if you're going to give her the award for that, in addition to her athletic accomplishments, does that make any sense? It also, I'm trying to understand what he, uh, 
what Joe Biden is trying to communicate with this pick. I mean, can I be a little cynical? Like, she was, I mean, it was kind of a viral moment when she stepped down from the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get the details wrong, but like. Tokyo Olympics, Yeah, right? and it was like she backed out of an individual performance and then out of a group thing of some kind at the last minute because her mental mm-hmm. health was suffering. And um, it was huge. It was this huge thing everybody was talking about. I think everyone in like my realm was supportive of it, but it was kind of controversial. And so I think to your point, Clay, about like Biden kind of wanting to make some points about <laughs> some of his picks, I think the vocal critics of, you know, her Olympic, uh, I don't know how to say like in a neutral way backed out, but like her um, backing out of those events, the people who were the probably the most strong, most strongly negative toward like reaction towards that tended to be conservative, tended to be like white dudes, tended to be, you know, I'm sure if Trump was still on Twitter, he would have been like, Simone Biles is a quitter. And so I think Joe (laughs) Biden being like, I'm supporting her decision. And who knows, like with everything going on, they might have made some of these picks a while ago when she was still very buzzy and like it's all anyone was talking about. Mm -hmm. And I do, I want to make clear that we are, yeah, we are not necessarily criticizing Simone Biles. It's just that, you know, even Michael Jordan, they waited a solid 10 years until after he retired before he, he won the medal. So uh, yeah, just a, just a a kind of a strange pick. So I think no offense to, athletes in general, because I'm going to paint them with a pretty broad brush. But I think once you age out of your sport, there are people like, uh, who was it? Penske, who like went and became like a big racing person. And Christine profiled him when we were doing the Trump stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think those are very few and far between. And I think the idea of waiting until, you know, like 30 or 40 years from now, when she's kind of like lost her cachet, and she's kind of unknown and it's kind of like a thing where it's like oh which one is she again i think she is according to the white house press announcement the most decorated gymnast of all time she has done incredible things for mental health she was the essentially whistleblower of a lot of that larry nasser stuff i think um not to say that she's accomplished everything that she's going to accomplish but i feel like she's already accomplished more than most of the presidential medal of freedom recipients who received it in their, you know, 40, in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. That's true. I mean, maybe we are looking at this as a bit of a uh, an ageism side of things, because if uh, she was, let's say, any other type of public figure, whether an actor or something like that, and she was 40 or 50 years old, then you're right. Like, we, we would be lauding her for, for what she has achieved. So that is a good point. Next up, we have Sister Simone Campbell, who is a member of the Sisters of Social Service and the former executive director of Network, which is a Catholic social justice organization. She's also a prominent advocate for economic justice, immigration reform, and healthcare policy. We do have our first Catholic president since John F. Kennedy, yep. and this certainly is reflected in some of Joe Biden's picks here. And uh, I think that you always are going to knock it out of the park whenever you, whenever you choose a, a nun, mm-hmm. certainly uh, with the type of social issues that, that she has. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, I bet she's someone that when we, someone comes around, you know, as we cycle through and picks her and does like some research on her, I think she'll be in the category of some of the ones we've already done on the pod who are like, 
huh, you know, like didn't have a huge uh, Wikipedia page or anything, but this person did some really cool stuff with their with their life. And so I, I would imagine that she'll be in that category. And Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. It, it was probably important to him to, to get some Catholic, uh, Catholic picks in. That's the thing about like nuns, man, like their entire life is like pick a cause and go for it. So I'm sure, mm-hmm. um, again, we won't do it here, but when we do eventually deep dive on her, that she'll have accomplished some awesome stuff because it's like her entire life is dedicated to service. So Sister yeah, Simone definitely. Campbell, look forward to learning more about you, honestly, because I don't... Yeah. All right. Next up, Julieta Garcia, who is the former president of the University of Texas at Brownsville. Woo-woo. <laughs> she off. was named one of Time Magazine's best college presidents. Uh, Dr. Garcia was the first Hispanic woman to serve as a collegiate president and dedicated her career to serving students from the southwest border region. Uh, Brownsville is a, a border town in Texas. I do think that this definitely has uh, your your classic Medal of Freedom pick that's kind of speaking to a voting base. And certainly in the 2020 election, there were a surprising amount of Hispanics in Texas that did vote for Donald Trump. I, I think that this is kind of him elevating and raising a spotlight on someone from that community in that area of the United States. I'm not going to say it's a cynical pick, but I do think it's a deliberate pick toward a certain demographic. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I've never heard of her and I don't find, you know, university administration to be like something that I think is (laughs) important in a, you know, like I, I don't know how to say that, uh, academic administrator has like distinguished themselves. I, you know, it's just sort of, I I don't know. And, and I initially was like, well, he has no connection to Texas. Like, where's this coming from? And, and then, but to your point, I think you're probably exactly right. Next, Gabrielle Giffords, who is a former congressman, was the youngest woman ever elected to the Arizona State Senate, serving first in the Arizona legislature and later in the United States Congress. We do know her for a much more tragic thing, which is that she is a survivor of gun violence in a mass shooting. She was shot in the head and miraculously uh, managed to to survive and really fight her way back. Uh, It seems like her her rehabilitation was absolutely excruciating. Uh, She has co-founded Giffords, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to gun violence uh, prevention. Uh, She's also married to Mark Kelly, who is the uh, senator from Arizona as well. I think that this is an absolute slam dunk pick. I think that it is, uh, A, spotlighting someone who essentially was grievously injured through serving as a uh, public figure in the United States. Yeah. She essentially like survived an assassination attempt. Exactly. And I think that it spotlights gun control and uh, victims of gun violence. I think again, a great pick here. I agree. And I think also her character, if I can say that, like the, as you alluded to clay, like the strength that she showed physical and, and mental, um, the kind of traumatic brain injury she had, like, it's possible you could never walk again. You could never speak again. And her, you know, her, her I don't know, vocal ability, her speaking abilities is not and probably never will be what it was before the injury. Um, and I think her mobility is, is the, you know, similarly, like, she's never going to get back to 100%. But it, it's like, 
almost miraculous how how much she was able to recover. And I'm like, you, that has to be because she worked her ass off. Mm-hmm. And so, and she's continued to be in the public eye. Like she's almost like got a little bit of a defiant, like, no, I'm not going to be say like ashamed of the fact that if I give a speech, it has to be, you know, probably simplified or, or done in a way that's going to work with her, what she's capable of doing. She still like goes out and, <laughs> speaks publicly and and married an astronaut by the way mark kelly who then went on to be a senator and it's just like ah yeah we're, we're big gifford fans giffords fans here yeah and the only person i can compare her to is jim brady who for those who don't know uh, survived the ronald reagan assassination yes. attempt mm-hmm. and was awarded the medal of freedom in 1996 by president clinton Again, someone who really, uh, despite working for a Republican administration, worked the rest of his life toward gun control and gun issues. So, right. yeah, really good pick here. I I think that uh, that this is a, a strong choice that you made. There's a handful of picks on this list that, like John McCain, spoiler alert, we saw coming. But Gabby Giffords is one of the ones that I don't think we mentioned that now in hindsight seem so obvious. Yes, agreed. Um, where I'm like, well, how did we not pick I that know. one? I know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Fred Gray, who was one of the very first African-American members of the Alabama state legislature since Reconstruction, as an attorney who represented Rosa Parks, the NAACP, and Martin Luther King, who called him the chief counsel for the protest movement. I think that a, a phrase like the chief counsel for the protest movement is indicative of this pick. A lot of social justice choices that he's made here, and he's absolutely, President Biden is absolutely sending a signal mm-hmm. uh, that this is something that's important to him and he will push for the remainder of his presidency. It's also awesome that, because I just clicked over to his Wikipedia, he's 91. And I know we ta- we have a lot. We have a lot of like very long living metal recipients as frequent listeners will notice as we go through. And I'm just like, I'm so glad like he's still here and he's 91 and he got to like, mm-hmm. this didn't have to be a posthumous award and we'll hopefully like bring more attention. Cause I didn't know him by name once I sort of looked at him and it was like, Oh, remember the movie Selma? He was played by Cuba Gooding Jr. And I'm kind of like, Oh no, I, I do kind of know who he is, but he wasn't like a household name to me. And hopefully this is going to, yeah, sort of give him that, like, rubber stamp on his legacy, fortunately, while he's still, while he's still around to, to get to. Yeah, just incredible that the, the lawyer from Martin <laughs> Luther King and Rosa Parks is still alive. Yeah, and so, he got a, congrats he got a to medal him. from Joe. Next up is the person who I think almost all of us are using his products right now, Steve Jobs, the first of the posthumous awards that were made this year. By the way, before we do get into that, no with distinction choices in this round, uh, which is interesting. Is this something to look forward to for next time? Uh, But yeah, Steve Jobs was the co-founder, chief executive, and chair of Apple Incorporated, CEO of Pixar, and held a leading role at the Walt Disney Company. His vision, imagination, and creativity led to inventions that have and continue to change the way the world communicates, as well as transforming the computer, music, film, and wireless industries. Again, has to be, if not the most influential, at least the highest profile inventor and technology leader since Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... He is the Charles Xavier uh, to Elon Musk's Magneto. Like... (laughs) 
(laughs) (laughs) Well done, Brian. Just to put it in terms we can all understand. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's... It's funny because I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of um, Broadway drama, which we don't have to get into. It's very niche, where it's like, does it matter if someone wasn't a good person or isn't a good person if their work is really good? Um, And I think Steve Jobs... Yes, I'm talking about Leah Michelle. okay? Steve Jobs is one of those people. Like, it's just like he... uh, There's not actually... I don't think it's possible to overstate what he... Like, how much he literally changed the world um not always for the better necessarily but it's just like yeah we i'm on an iphone i'm on a mac you know it's it's just there's no there's no comparison like if when we eventually do a a whole episode on him and we say who would he be today it's just like not you know there's no one Uh, elizabeth holmes (laughs) i mean those turtlenecks alone um, what he did for the turtleneck industry will never be forgotten. Love a man in a turtleneck. <laughs> I love a man who gets a high-profile job and is like, I'm going on a diet. Like, what a king. <laughs> Gone too soon. Um, yeah. He, he uh, obviously was not the most fun person to work for, but his innovations absolutely changed it. And I do think that, that while we are, it's a knee jerk reaction to criticize technology, his beliefs about privacy and, and uh, trying to make things a a statement of artistic intent are still influential to the, to this day, to the company. Whenever you do compare uh, Apple to Facebook and to Amazon and to Google, you cannot deny that Apple has made greater strides toward creating privacy for users as opposed to selling the data secretly to the highest bidder. So mm-hmm. I think that there are some laudits that he still deserves, even though that he's been gone for 11 years now. I agree. Yeah, this one was, I have no qualms about it. It just, I just had to. Well, number one, I had to find a way to bring up funny girl drama, but also, I mean, it is it is interesting to think. <laughs> Which is the real reason why Joe Biden named yeah, Steve it was Jobs, shade. It was course, shade. To, well, I mean, right. just like I was saying with Gabrielle Giffords, like it's not just like the events of her life; it's how she handled them and like the what she's shown about you know her strength as a person. And so it just it's interesting, you know, like two picks later, we're like, well, here's this guy who's like kind of a. <laughs> Not the best guy, but look at all the things he did. So it's it's a good reminder mm-hmm. that, you know, they can't all be Beanie Feldsteins, you know. Right, right. Next is Father Alexander Kalustos, who is a former uh, vicar general of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. After over 50 years as a priest, providing counsel to several United States presidents, he was named by his all-holiness enumerical Patriarch Bartholomew as the protobiester of the. Oh my God! <laughs> I'm not even going to try to finish the statement from the White Place, House. Like atheist ass trying to name drop a bunch of religious things is maybe the highlight of my day. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna copy and paste this into the chat, and we're gonna have Christine read this off because uh, you're right. I am the wrong person to be uh, handling this one here. Okay. Well, in the meantime, I've never heard of this person. I'm sure he's great. Uh, No, and good for Biden getting another religious picture. Yeah. 
I, I think this is an intentional thing with him is that uh, at least the younger Democratic generation, ourselves included, have kind of not necessarily centered our identity on religion. And I think that that it is good that that he's communicating that uh, Democrats are also people of faith as much as Republicans try to uh, aggressively claim that mantle. All right. Do you want me to this is like our supplemental showdown for for this. <laughs> Let's compare Clay. And I failed. Sounding like he was putting some sort of like hex on something to. <laughs> OK. <clears throat> Father Alexander Karlutsos is the former vicar general of the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese of America. After over 50 years as a priest, providing counsel to several U.S. presidents, he was named by His All Holiness Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew as a proto-presbyter of the Ecumenical Patriarchate. And ladies and gentlemen, Christine Sear wins the supplemental showdown. There's no contest. I was embarrassing. Thanks. I used to be Catholic, which is not the same as Greek Orthodox, but a lot of the lingo is the same. So, mm, same jargon. Yeah. So good, good for him. He said. I, actually, I bet when we do profile him eventually, him working with multiple U.S. presidents. I'm curious to know more about that. I bet he's got mm-hmm. some interesting stuff in his career. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Next choice, in my opinion, has to be the strongest. Thumb in the eye. <laughs> yes, to the former that guy. Kazir Khan is a gold star father and founder of the Constitutional Literacy and National Unity Center. He is a prominent advocate for the rule of law and religious freedom and served on the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom under President Biden. Uh, there is a very strong buried headline here, which is that he... Uh, was one of Donald Trump's huge public feuds and uh, really criticized this man of a soldier who gave his life for the country. And again, absolutely incredible that Trump didn't completely alienate the military community with that entire thing back in 2016. So uh, it does sound like that this man has done some incredible things for the country. And I also think that you're right. It's a huge thumb in the eye to the former that guy. I love it. Yep. All, I'm all 10 out of 10 on this one. Now, this next one is one of the ones that we did not predict. And I know we had said that we thought Dr. Fauci would get it a second time, this time with distinction. And to me, if we had just pushed a little bit further into the COVID-19 of it all without like, you know, maybe not looking to his left or right and seeing Deborah Burks, who should get it for her Hermes scarf collection, this person uh, who you're about to name is probably the person yeah. where we would have gotten there if we had if thought about workshopped it. Workshopped it, longer. yeah. Yeah. Sandra Lindsay is a New York critical care nurse who served on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic response. She was the first American to receive a COVID-19 vaccine outside of clinical trials and is a prominent advocate for vaccines and mental health for healthcare workers. Look, she's great. I, I'm sure. So the thing is, when I first heard about it, I'm like, oh, it's a little bit of a stunt, not a stunt, but like a symbol. You know, it's what she represents and not her as a person. But then I was reminded that, like, there's probably a reason she was chosen to be the first person to get the vaccine, because they knew it would be this big event. Like, I'm sure she was 
thoroughly vetted. <laughs> and I'm sure she's this like wonderful nurse. And the idea that after that big moment, um, when she could have just been like, well, that was weird. I'm going to go back to my life. She was like, has used that to continue to advocate for vaccinations. It's just like, yeah, this is, she's, a, yeah, I'm all for it. Absolutely. And when you do think of people who are known for doing one thing, the same year that James Brady was awarded the Medal of Freedom, Jim Brady was medded the Medal of Freedom in 1996, Rosa Parks was also named. I'm not comparing Rosa Parks and Sandra Lindsay uh, in terms of the things that they, they went through, but I do think that both of them, uh, through what they've done, I think that Sandra Lindsay made a, a sacrifice in, in taking that chance to be the very first yeah. person vaccinated outside of clinical trials and and is a very cool thing that she did. And it seems like she's been a really great example for the healthcare community. I know that she has a, a background in the Caribbean as well and uh, mm. just a, a good role model for getting out of this awful pandemic. Yeah. So we're, we're all for Sandra Lindsay. And Brian's right. It was like, this is another one that was right in front of our faces and we didn't think of it. I think that... They are going to wait until Dr. Fauci retires before they mm, they give it to him yeah. again. With I mean, they couldn't like give us like Ginsburg, Fauci, Obama, like the first go. Like I get it, but it's it's all happening. I know it. It is. <laughs> and maybe we won't be sick when that when that news drops, and we can do like a midnight pod. Next up, former senator and soldier John McCain. Yeah who passed away in 2018. He was a public servant who was awarded a Purple Heart with one gold star for his service in the United States Navy in Vietnam. He also served the people of Arizona for decades in the U.S. House of Representatives and United States Senate and was the Republican nominee for president in 2008. You also forgot he is the father of Emmy Award-winning View co-host, <laughs> Megan McCain. <laughs> Megan, my father, McCain. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I don't know why that didn't make it into Disgusting. the summer. There. Incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I do think that in first glance, you would equate this also to Kazir Khan. But I think that even if Donald Trump never became president, that John McCain would still win this award uh, just due to his lack of partisanship and service to the country as well. This is one that we did predict. And uh, yeah. Well, aren't they also they were friends. This one's yes. personal, too. Yes, and I brought her up as a joke, but I will not forget that moment. I think Trump and Hillary were neck and neck leading up to the election of 2016, and Biden appeared to promote his book on The View, and he talked about how John McCain had just been diagnosed with the same cancer that had killed uh, Joe Biden's son. Oh, my. Like, I'm going to cry just hearing about it. Him oh my and God. Meghan McCain had this, like, moment where they were hugging and he, like, told her, like, I, I, I've I, been where you've been and I know your father's an incredible man and I know he's going to give us all he can. <sighs> like, it is truly a thing where they not only were they friends, but, like, Biden has spoken very positively about McCain multiple times after the, you know, 20, 2008 election where, you know, I mean, I would say, like, if... If my friend was on the other ticket, I think it might be a thing where it's like, we take time out. Yeah. But, you know, that's not who Joe Biden is. Yeah. So yeah. I'm sure it was... For better or for worse. Like, John McCain deserved it, but I'm also happy that it specifically got to be Joe Biden. Like, Unfortunately, it's posthumous, but, like, I'm sure it was very meaningful to him to get to... Cindy's going to go. She's going to look great. She's going to have a great time at the White House. 
She is. She'll be like, mm, that's not what I would have done with the curtains, but it's fine. Jill, maybe a little less time doctoring and a little bit more time decorating. <laughs> Next up, Diane Nash, who is a founding member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who organized some of the most important civil rights campaigns of the 20th century. Nash worked closely with Martin Luther King, who described her as the driving spirit in the nonviolent assault on segregation at lunch counters. Again, another social justice pick here. I think that these picks are very similar to Lyndon Johnson's picks with a lot of civil rights leaders as well. The only difference being that Johnson also did name a lot of artists and writers and philosophers. Last week's profile on Walter Lippmann, case in point here. But yeah, absolutely. I it's pretty clear that a lot of people from the civil rights generation are at the ends of their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that they rightfully should be recognized for uh, putting their bodies and their, their safety at risk during these protests in the, yeah, uh, there's in no, the 20th century. There's no like expiration date on, you know, civil rights pioneers and their accomplishments. So, yeah. Yeah. Next is someone a bit more well-known. Megan Rapino is a uh, Olympic gold medalist and two-time Women's World Cup champion. She also captains O.L. Reign in the uh, National Women's Soccer League. She's a prominent advocate for gender pay equality, racial justice, and the LBGTQI plus rights. She also has to be one of the youngest people ever to, to yeah. win the award. She has to be younger than the Apollo 11 astronauts, correct? Yeah, I th- think i mean soccer stars have slightly longer careers than gymnasts but she's yeah Mm -hmm. she's pretty young and probably yeah it seems like in spirit kind of a similar pick to simone biles like here's like an incredibly accomplished athlete who's also trying to do things with her platform so she is 37 years old which makes her one year younger than neil armstrong the year he went to the moon wow Mm. Also several years younger than me, and I have accomplished zero things. So that's cool. Also, she just hey, seems like fun, time. right? If we're going to take umbrage with an athlete getting it, I'm giving it to Simone Biles, and I'm taking it for Megan Rapino. And I'm sorry, but that, that hurts me because you know that last year I went on a tangent that only, like, I think less than two dozen out, two dozen gay people have received it. Never mind out gay people. So, I mean, like, I love her. I think she is very cool. I agree with Christine. I think she's very fun. But to me, this was one of those picks where I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Why why would you pick Biles over Rapino? I just think that Rapino has, like, played soccer very, very well. She fought mm. for pay equality. I feel like with Simone Biles, it's it, there's a little bit of everything. Like, there's nothing that, like, and when, you know, she's one of those people who, when uh, the Olympics come around every four years, whenever they would, they were, she was always somebody they would focus on, and she was always somebody who delivered. Like, there was never a point where I was like, oh, I don't want to see her anymore. Whereas, like, I feel Mm -hmm. like Megan Rapinoe had that one kind of big moment where we were following the Women's World Cup, and then from that point on, it's just been like a thing where sometimes she pops up. But it's not like a thing where I feel like she's had as big of an uh, indelible mark, not to put female athletes against each other. I mean, I was very excited to see the fact that Biden picked two, especially since we had the conversation about how it was like Billie Jean King and then those three golfers that Trump picked. Yeah, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. 
Another bipartisan pick here, Alan Simpson served as a U.S. senator from Wyoming for 18 years during his public service. He has been a prominent advocate on issues including campaign finance reform, responsible governance, and marriage equality. Very important at the award ceremony, Liz Cheney attended due to her also being from Wyoming and uh, was a guest of Alan Simpson. Uh, again, kind of sticking with her bipartisan bona fides that we have uh, very publicly seen through the January mm-hmm. 6th hearings. Yeah. Good pick. Yes, I'm proud of I'm you, happy Joe. with this one. It is crazy because you know how we have this like thing about members of Congress having staying in office for incredibly long times. He only retired in um, 2010, and he was born in 1931. Mm. So, you know. And it's also just... He was eight when he saw The Wizard of Oz in theater. (laughs) (laughs) And when there was color, my God. It is... Just shows how different and far we've come for the worse since his retirement if i was to say that there was a politician being honored who stood for campaign finance reform responsible governance and marriage equality i don't think he would say that that person was a republican and the fact that he was really does show how how different the world Mm -hmm. is uh we thought we'd hit rock bottom clay but we stamped our feet too hard and we have landed in the (laughs) sub-basement and it's flooded with shit (laughs) (laughs) an evocative metaphor thank you brian Yes, thank you, Brian. Here, you're on fire today. <laughs> Next up is the first pro-labor pick mm, that Donald Trump... Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus Christ, I'm going to say that again. No, you have to, like, spray some holy water and, like, burn some sage. Yeah. We're not going back. So, you said the word archdiocese, and now we're reaching for the holy water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, yeah. Next up is Joe Biden's first recognition of the labor and union movement, a posthumous choice of Richard Trumka, who passed away last year. He was the president of the AFL-CIO for more than a decade, president of the United Mine Workers and secretary treasury for the AFL-CIO before that. Throughout his career, he was an outspoken advocate for social and economic justice, Again, you could say it's cynical in that he's speaking to union organizers and union workers, but... And, like, the coal people in West Virginia. <laughs> yeah. I do think that that is a group, and I know we've spoken about it several times before on the show, a group that is starting to regain its prominence in American society. Mm-hmm. So, uh, good pick here. I agree. Next up is Wilma Vaught who is one of the most decorated women in the history of the United States military, repeatedly breaking gender barriers as she rose through the ranks. When she retired in 1985, she was only one of seven women generals in the armed forces. I think that this is probably someone who is going to have a pretty incredible profile whenever we, uh, whenever we go through her um, life. Okay, yeah. Do you guys know... <laughs> When you go to her Wikipedia page and there's like the little like at a glance in the upper right hand corner, it's like it takes up the whole screen with all of the different like honors and awards she's gotten from the military. And she's 92 and she just looks cool as shit. I want to call dibs, but like we'll just we'll see where we'll see where the cards fall. Well, I'm sure that she could probably fight all of us and win. (laughs) Oh, and it would be an honor. Yes. Got yes, my ass kicked by Wilma Vaught. 
Next up is the lone choice who I guess you could qualify as being an artist. Denzel Washington is an actor, director, and producer who has won two Academy Awards, a Tony Award, two Golden Globes, and the 2016 Cecil B. DeMille Lifetime Achievement Award. He has also served as national spokesman for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America for over 25 years. Um... I don't have a problem with this one. I mean, I had to look up his age. He's 67. I don't think mm-hmm. his like best work is behind him. I think he's someone that as he settles into like middle age slash elderly age, I think he's going to continue mm-hmm. to do like great acting work. So, but this does feel a little bit like, Hey, if you look at the, the span of his career, um, he's, I mean, I think he's also in an increasingly rare accomplishment, like an unproblematic man in Hollywood. As far as I know, what, next week it's going to come out and I'll have to eat my words. But. So this is one of those picks that I think we should have seen coming because if you think of the Mount Rushmore of movie stars, all capital letters, that are alive and working right now, I would say it's Meryl Streep, Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. Hanks and Streep already have it. And like, Mm -hmm. I just, to me, it makes so much more, like, I love Julia Roberts. Stream the Pelican Brief. If you want a little Roberts, you want a little Washington. And they're prime, yeah. A perfect film that no longer How is that movie aged? It's, Clay, it's about two, uh, uh, somebody being brave enough to assassinate two Supreme Court justices in the same night. That movie has aged perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) And you want to know who the assassin is? It's a hot 1990s Stanley Tucci. Nice. Okay, I know what I'm Shout doing out tonight. Check. Every movie needs a touch of the, the tooch. tooch. <laughs> He's a chameleon. He can do anything. I do. I, I picture him still as, as young, but you are right. If Hanks has it, Meryl Streep has it, he absolutely deserves it as much as they do. So I'm, I back this. Well, book. and it is funny that in a, in a round where... As you said, he didn't really focus on the arts. This is the only one. You know, the the cinematic theatrical arts were the only um, artistic kind of thing here. So I I think he's just a... But I could see if, like, a reality where Joe Biden, like, looks at Obama's picks and goes, you didn't pick Denzel again? Like, Mm. (laughs) I mean, I think, like, he was, like, ready for this. Like, he was just like, oh, I get to do it now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good for Denzel. He's a New York boy. Yes. And lastly, apologies in advance for, I'm sure, butchering this name. Raul Yizigiri is a civil rights advocate who served as CEO and president of the National Council of La Raza for 30 years. He also served as United States ambassador to the Dominican Republic under President Barack Obama. Awesome. Congrats, Raul. Yeah, we have no yeah. probs. <laughs> one of the few, uh, one of the few diplomats named here. Yeah, I'm sure that this was was more for his uh, his civil rights advocacy. But uh, yeah, it's nice to see another government official being named. Yeah, this feels like a classic presidential medal of freedom pick. Like there's a there's an interesting spread of of activity. He also served in the military, so it's like kind of a three for three. Yeah. So there we have it, mm-hmm. the 2022 Medal of Freedom recipients. Now that we've gone through it, guys, what do you think? Any thoughts on on these picks? Uh, do you think that this is a good group? I think overall that there are some really good choices here. Yeah. I'm not wowed by the group as a whole, but I think it was a good first first round. 
I also don't mm-hmm. find Joe Biden to be a particularly surprising president. There's been very few things that he's done where I've been like, wow. And I will say, I really thought after studying the list of prior recipients uh, through the other presidential administrations and having known Joe Biden as such a, you know, very prominent public figure um, who is so well known. And I mean, you know, obviously he became president, beloved. I thought I had him figured out. And there's, there were a lot of curveballs in this that I was like, Okay, Joe, I'm glad to see you. you can still surprise me. You mm-hmm. did it, Joe. You surprised me. You're the most surprising president <laughs> in the United States. Sure. All right. Well, well there we yeah. go. I'm glad that we did this. I've, we've been looking forward to doing this episode in a very long time. I don't know if it was worth the, the month delay as we were coughing along. By the way, I forgot to mention that there was one person who wasn't able to make it or be represented, and that was Denzel Washington, who, like us, had COVID uh, on his big day of receiving the Stars medal, so. really are just like us. Yes. I hope Mr. Washington is feeling better, and he'll be able to attend next year's ceremony. It's such a shame, because we were robbed of the New York Post cover that said, Mr. Washington goes to Washington, which, you know, just really sucks. That, <laughs> slow slow clap, that was good, Brian. Brian. <laughs> good, Brian. I feel like you should have been chopping a cigar when you said it, but otherwise, perfect. No notes. Oh, I am slowly turning into Joe Gina Jameson from Spider-Man because, number Um, one, I always want pictures of Spider-Man. And now, number two, I have a economy-sized jar of Tums in my desk that I just constantly am popping. So I'm not surprised that I'm just, like, firing off headlines. (laughs) I love it. And Elizabeth Banks is your assistant, too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm just constantly okay. screaming, he's a menace! About, you know, just about anyone who comes into anyone. the office. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, guys, when we come back, our medals of the week. So... We are back with our medals of the week, not as prestigious as Joe Biden's Mm. uh, ceremony Mm -hmm. in the White House and reception to follow in the Rose Garden. But it is essentially our moment where for a minute or two, we get to pretend that we are the president of the United States and bestow a medal on a person. We've given it to places. We've given it to ideas. Hell, there was one week where Christine gave it to a tugboat. Um, who we think, uh, you know, is just doing the best that they can this week. Since we've been gone for a few months uh, due to Clay's anti-homosexual agenda and then the two of them getting coronavirus, like it's March of 2020. As a result of our anti-homosexual yeah, our, agenda. That's right. our yes, punishment. It was gay rap month and we gave them yes. COVID. Yeah. I am going to give a medal to someone who you know, probably has not been in the conversation for many years at this point, but recently came up as part of a dominant force in my house and the conversation. Um, on July 4th, after the fall of Roe versus Wade, my sister, me, do you remember what it was like to actually be able to be proud to be an American? And I said, yes, I do. And I'm going to remind you of how proud we once were as a nation and I turned on the first episode of The West Wing. <laughs> and my sister and I have been watching The West Wing like night by night, every night when we get home from our jobs after dinner. So you're still uh, usually doing like, it. Uh, yeah, usually cool. like uh, one or two episodes at a time. And I want to give a medal of the week to Martin Sheen. But more realistically, I want to give it to Jed Bartlett the 44th president of the United States, I think, or 40, no, 43rd. He would have been uh, the person who won after Clinton. 
a calming force, just like a true leader. Um, this is especially now, you know, for the first segment, we talked about just like the, the, the chaos right now uh, with tribalism and, you know, just Democrats and Republicans not being able to come together and see eye to eye or even make an agreement on anything. I mean, this is just, it's, it's like fantasy. It's fan fiction. There's bipartisanship. There's people caring about each other. Oh my God. It's, it's truly the America I want to live in. And at the center of it is Martin Sheen, who is just giving this incredible performance and it's just so calming. And so, you know, he's a leader you can really believe in. And when and if he ever does pass away, I want it to be that Martin Sheen gets to lie in state because he is truly the greatest leader that this country has ever had. Strong words. Christine, you haven't seen the show either, right? Correct. Which is insane because all Christine and Clay talk about is having a walk and talk. We like, used you to know, have like them. around there when they used to work in the office yeah. together. Um, it is a phrase that they use constantly, which is an Aaron Sorkin like stronghold. I know. I'm pretty sure he gets a nickel every time we say it. Could you describe President Bartlett's leadership style to former presidents? How how would you, if you were to put an amalgamation of of him to other presidents, how would you describe him? Well, he has that quiet calm of President Trump. <laughs> um, <laughs> Pause. Take two. Pause Take for two. laughter. Um, no, like I, you really can't. Like it's, it's. He is the perfect president for an Aaron Sorkin project because in an Aaron Sorkin project, there's you know arguments and there's fighting, but at the end of the day, there's just one person sitting in that room and they're not saying anything, and then they stand up, they speak for three minutes, they say the most like powerful, illuminating, heartbreaking thing, and then everyone in the room realizes that guy's right, and nine times out of ten, that's Martin Sheen as President Bartlett. Mm. Okay. That has very Daniel Day Lewis's Lincoln energy to me. Ooh. Is that yeah? Accurate? I think that that's uh, that's not far off. Does he tell folksy stories? Uh, he does. There was like the one of the most famous episodes is the one where they're meeting with conservative Christians who don't think that uh, gay people should be able to be in the military. And like the woman says like, well, in the Bible and he goes in Leviticus and he goes through all the Bible verses in Leviticus. And it's like, uh, do I have to contact the government and have them kill Toby because he works on Sunday and doesn't keep holy the Sabbath day? Uh, can I do a small fire for my, for, to, uh, you know, set my, to burn my mother at the stake because she wears the garment made of two different types of cloth. Like, and he'll, you know, kind of go on this thing and, it's Aaron Sorkin. So the dialogue is like rapid fire. It's all filled with facts and it just makes you feel a certain type of way. And I, I do remember, you know, there there's that scene with Adam Driver and Daniel Day-Lewis early on in Lincoln before, I think right before he becomes president or after he became president, where essentially he's listening to Adam Driver and this other guy talk. And then he just like stands up and like completely dispels everything that they've said. And they're like, we're going to die. We would die for you, President Lincoln. And that's how I feel about President Bartlett. And I'm just saying, Martin Sheen could be President Lincoln. Daniel Day Lewis could never be President Bartlett. And that's that on that. Mm. Nice. <laughs> all right. Once we're done filming all of the 2018 Little Women, Christine and I can live tweet our way through watching yes. the West Wing for the first time. I know. Our walk and talks will never be the same again. So I guess I'll go next. So mine is my medal of the week is going to a young 
former actress named Jeanette McCurdy. I and Claire are definitely too old to have known who she was before the last couple days. Brian, maybe you knew who she was, especially because you have a younger sister. Uh, okay. Yes. I, I'm very familiar with her work. She was the star on, or sorry, it's an ensemble. So she was one of the stars of the show iCarly and its subsequent spinoff, Sam and Cat, which was her and Ariana Grande. So she was like really big for a, for a portion of Gen Z, maybe younger millennials and elder Gen Z grew up watching her. And she just published a memoir called I'm Glad My Mom Died. <laughs> And it's a picture of her holding her mom's, the urn of her mom's ashes and smiling. And I think that very emo, like, and so to, in the interest of full disclosure, I've not actually read the book. I plan to, but I have read a couple of interviews with her because she's getting extensive again, like to me, it was a little bit of a surprise because she wasn't a star to me, but she's a star to like an entire generation of people. And so she has been getting a lot of press on this book tour. So as the title suggests, the tone is sort of like dark, but also darkly funny. So her mother was more than a stage mom. Like she definitely was a stage mom and had the classic, like, I want my daughter to be a star, like that sort of toxic stuff that you think of when you think of stage mom, but her mom was also just literally abusive and perpetuated or allowed Jeanette's abuse at the hands of, she doesn't name him in the book, but it's pretty clear. She's talking about Dan Schneider. She, uh, she does name, she him, does in name him in the book. I, I think she's being vague. I, you know how like people wrote a celebrity memoir now and they're like, this happened. And then it's like, well, then I don't need to read the book. Now I know. Um, she referred she, to she him like as stuff. the creator and, which is very ominous. Right, and it's like meaning the creator of the show and the creator of the show is this man, Dan Schneider, who like, to be clear, it, um, it certainly seems, I mean, we're not going to get, we're not going to hear from his lawyers because nobody listens to the show. These are all accusations, you know. Um, allegedly. allegedly. He had like a history of abuse against the children, to be clear, that were on his shows and has not yet had his his reckoning. So I want there were some people who came out against him in the like in that firestorm after the times weinstein piece where like everybody who was not everybody i'm sure there's still a couple out there uh but so many people were just a um, couple kind of having their day of reckoning yeah and he seemed to have sort of like weaseled out of it or i don't know if he has had consequences like he got fired or you know there haven't been any true like legal consequences for him so the reasons why i want to give her the medal, it's like a couple of things. One is I think she's doing something really important for the, so, all right, not a lot of people are child stars, right? Like you don't have that element of the, of the like toxic pie, but anyone who's had like an abusive parent, anyone who's been abused in the workplace, she has, again, it, it, didn't resonate with me because I was too old to watch her show. I was watching like, you can't do that on television on Nickelodeon. Like that's how old I am. We didn't have like high budget teen ensemble comedies. It was like Canadian shows about slime. Let's get you to bed. For the listeners at home, Christine (laughs) is saying all of this while holding a lit cigarette. (laughs) In my day, all the shows were Canadian, but I also think I know that the, you know, Younger millennials and Gen Z, thanks to the toxic influence of the internet and social media, like a lot of them, their biggest aspiration is to be famous. And she's like, I hated being famous. I have a really negative 
just like feeling toward the show, toward people calling me Sam, which was her character name, all that kind of stuff. She's not one of those people who's like, well, you know, I'm glad that the fan, like, she's just like, I didn't want to be there. My mom made me be there. And like the entire experience was horrible. And another interview, I didn't watch the whole thing, but I saw a clip of it was, I think it was George Stephanopoulos was like, what do you think your mom would have thought if you wrote this book before she died? And the thing that was so profound that she said was she's like, I couldn't have written this before she died because my entire identity was still beholden to her. Like while she was still alive, everything, you know, like eating disorder, like the the approval in terms of what she was accomplishing with her career, all this kind of stuff. And she like is basically saying, I only got to become a person after my mom died. And I was finally able to start reckoning with like the magnitude of her abuse. So I just think it's really brave. I think that she had not a lot to gain. I mean, to be fair, the book's a bestseller already. So, I mean, she has monetarily gained something, but she didn't have a lot to gain as like a well-regarded former Nickelodeon star coming out with like a provocative book title and to just like shit all over the, the show that she was on that the network that she was on, the person who created the show she was on, her own mom. Like these aren't low stakes things to just like burn it all down, but she did it. And I think I'm looking forward to reading the book and and I just want to give her, because actually, and to tie it back into what we were saying about, you know, one of the medal winners, Simone Biles, even though we didn't all agree about her deserving like this, that medal, <laughs> which, you know, maybe we see as a lifetime achievement medal and she's so young, but it's like, if you start to think about it, like, the Gen Zers and younger millennials, like between people like Simone Biles or someone like Jeanette McCurdy being like, hey, this thing that you all sort of like worshipped me for or looked up to me for was actually really bad for my mental health. And it's important to talk about that. So it also gives me a lot of hope that like the kids, maybe the kids are going to be okay. Just as somebody who I know you had blind spots on it and as somebody who watched a lot of iCarly with a sister who was five years younger than them at that perfect time for that. While everything else about Dan Schneider is an allegation, one of the things that is for real is he wrote the character that Jeanette played to have an abusive mother. Uh, she was like overbearing and verbally abusive. And her character, Sam, also had a disordered eating habit where she would binge eat like tons oh. of, I think they called them yummy cakes or tasty cakes or something like that. And it was always like made, made light of and made fun of on the show. But what I think is most important about what she is doing is I think too often when someone survives a terrible experience, we unfortunately, we teach them to romanticize it and to forgive and to like be the bigger person. And I'm not saying that she's not being a big person. She's she's being the biggest person because she's speaking her truth and she's doing it without fear. But I think the idea that she doesn't feel the need to romanticize her mother's memory is like, oh, she's my mom and she died. And she's like, no, she was a terrible person and treated me like shit. I think that that is something that we do not get to see enough. And I cannot tell you how many times I have been to a memorial service or, uh, you know, like I've got gathered news that someone has passed away. And if you do bring up something like something, they did something terrible to me. People will be like, you've got to let it go. They're not here anymore to defend right. themselves. And it's like, well, I don't care. I don't need them to defend themselves. I'm speaking, I'm telling you what yeah, happened. Like my trauma is still alive. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about it. <laughs> like I'm, well, unfortunately I'm still alive and I'm going to talk about it. They had the chance to kill me and they didn't. <laughs> all right so i think it's unanimous we all agree uh jeanette mccurdy deserves a a medal so good for you jeanette all right i'm glad that both of you have very inspirational picks (laughs) 
<laughs> for the show. Two TV icons from the early 2000s. Who do you have, Clay? I'd like to bring this down to extreme snark. I'm giving out a Limbaugh this week. And this is a story that I read that I really feel like I got there after the party was broken up by the cops. And by party, I mean... Domino's Pizza attempting to sell pizza in Italy. Yes. Mamma mia. This story is amazing. This story does have everything. I uh, I want to know everything about it. Yeah. First up, I want to just be a fly on the wall in the f***ing corporate Domino's board meeting where a guy with the hugest balls on earth strolls up to Mr. Domino and says, you know what I think would be really fun to spend a shit ton of money on? We should try to sell pizza in Italy. Italy, you know, where pizza was invented and they have the best Italian food because it's Italy. Yeah, we should try to sell pizza there. Not just pizza, the shittiest pizza in the world. The shittiest pizza in the world. And in the article, the tagline is, we're Domino's. And we know that there are some Italians out there that are brave enough to have pineapple on their pizza. Okay, first just. I love the hubris of this story. I love that this shitty Michigan chain restaurant thought that they could get away with this and that they failed spectacularly. And they fell on their asses. I begrudgingly give these guys a limbaugh for just being idiots, (laughs) but fun idiots. Actually, I would like to amend to say I think they're the second worst pizza in the world. The worst pizza in the world is Little Caesars. I just imagine, like, this news going public and, like, Papa John, like, smoking from a crack pipe and being like, ah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Oh, my God. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> like, you guys are extreme. I thought that Papa John's was extreme, but you guys, you're nuts. You're crazy, man. Ugh. I do. I, I read that and had a good chuckle. It's like literally pizza. People in Italy eat pizza every day and they're not fat because their pizza is made out of like wheat and tomato and like fresh cheese and it's all real food. And we're like, do you want some corn syrup on top of a crust that's basically cake? And they're like, I know. <laughs> top it off with barbecue chicken. And like, uh, what's that garlic? I have experienced Domino's guys. So I, you know, there's like the shot glass full of like garlic butter. Which is neither garlic nor butter, but some other abomination. It's essentially like the butter that they give you at the movie theaters, but with garlic in it. (laughs) They're like, they're going to love it. They're going to love it. Spoiler alert, they didn't love it. It's also Mm. hilarious because as somebody who grew up in Queens, New York, in a mostly Italian neighborhood, I cannot tell you how many times people have come home from Italy and have been like, the food wasn't very good. Not a lot of red sauce. Couldn't get a veal palm anywhere. I'm looking for something to stab myself with. So to me, the idea that like this bastardization of an Italian-American cooking, which is pizza, yes. essentially, uh, allegedly, thought that they could like reverse engineer themselves back into an Italian cuisine setting in Italy is just like, it's... It's not just hubris, it's gall. Like, I really... Like, whoever that guy was should be running communications for, for the, the DNC. That who, like, convinced them 
that that's a good Comes idea. Launch an exploratory committee, sir, because you you have balls. You will do what it takes. I mean, honestly, <laughs> yeah. it's the one shocking thing about this story is just that the restaurant restaurants Domino's restaurants quietly closed <laughs> instead of being like burned down by enraged Italian citizens who were like, "Why don't you just like take a dump on you know a Michelangelo painting or something?" And I honestly can't believe that they were even permitted to open because I don't know if you know this, but there is, there's not a single Starbucks in all of Italy because they don't believe that Starbucks does coffee correctly and they won't allow them to open a single location. Look, there's a, there's a McDonald's in Vatican city. So the Pope is conscious. Have you been there? Oh my God. It made me believe in God again. It's like a cathedral of (laughs) McDonald's. It's beautiful. It's it's the Sistine Chapel, but they're both reaching for French fries. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. But the idea that Domino's was somehow able to sneak in, but Starbucks can't, like, that's not right, Italy. That's not right. No, in Italy, they don't let you. They don't let you take a coffee. I think that's someone truly talented. Yeah. (laughs) Like it scares me a little. What else are these people capable of? That's why we need them to put their efforts toward benevolence. I mean, they could find they could find all the missing documents. I tell you that much. If they can get a Domino's and what it was multiple, right? It was like three of them or how many were there? Thirty four, Christine. <laughs> Thirty four. They all closed down. They all closed down the same day because no one went. And to that them. day is now they, a national holiday. They also spent the guy went up to the CEO of Domino's and said, can I have enough money to own and open 34 locations? And they all just kamikaze This is the opposite, though, of like a restaurant mass closing that I felt. And I don't know if you guys saw like three weeks ago, every Hale and Hardy closed in New York City. Oh, the City. end of an era. And as somebody yeah, who worked like in Midtown, like sometimes you just need a $7 tomato orzo soup. And the idea that I can no longer go there to get it is devastating. I liked Hale and Hardy. Like, I, I'm honestly sad. I walked by the closed Rockefeller Center location yesterday. I was going to say, and you I'm and I have been they were to that away. one more times than I can count. <laughs> yeah. On an Aaron Sorkin-approved walk and talk. Exactly. So, you know wow. what? I, I feel sad that Hale and Hardy went away, but I find it hilarious that Domino's Italy Thrilled. Do Pizza away. Hut next Italy. <laughs> Wait, there's Pizza Hut in Italy? No, oh, but I'm oh, just oh. saying, like, if you're going to continue to embarrass Chains, get Arby's ass. Do, do whoever you want to go after next. Oh, my God. The blood feud that the Tuft family <laughs> has against Arby's terrifies me. Do not mention America's roast beef. Yuck. Don't mention Arby's in, <laughs> in front of Brian or his sister. They'll physically fight you. Arby's knows what they, they do. <laughs> they really do. This episode sponsored by Arby's. <laughs> America's roast beef. Yum. We've got the meats. <laughs> Brian, are you going to wrap up or are we Sorry, just going I was, I was really close to making a very inappropriate joke about we got the meats and I, I've decided <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to pretend that I'm in the papal McDonald's and I'm going to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. That brings us to the end of our episode, guys. Maybe we'll do this again in a few months. Maybe not. We'll see what happens. We'll see what communicable diseases we all get between now and the next episode. Yeah. Hold on. Brian, you have yet to catch COVID. I don't know. You know, more, I plead the fifth. Okay. Well, I'm going to be looking at some banker boxes in your basement tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Come on over. The back door is open. You can go in the pool after. Oh, yay. All right. And on that note, we'll see you guys next time. I think Clay died. Oh, there he is. Okay. He's back. Bye.
See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.